0: The grand opening, you know, sometimes places, new places actually are opened and functioning before they have the grand opening, you know, there might be a a big new mall or a big new store of some sort, Uh, maybe it's even a church building, you know, it it gets years of preparation might have gone into it, Uh, maybe maybe a year or more of construction has gone into it, they've got everything inside ready and they've, they've already had the doors open. But then after a short time, they have what they call their grand opening, their grand opening, kind of like you're getting, getting some of the, the wrinkles out before you let everybody know what's really going on inside that new facility. Today we're going to look at what I would call a grand opening in the sense of Jesus' ministry. Now, Jesus' ministry and the preparations for it had been going on for 33 years On planet Earth. You know, Jesus is approximately 33 years old. We know about the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus coming to Earth in the form of a baby, God in the flesh. And he already was coming with a purpose defined by God the Father. But reality is, this thing had been in planning since the beginning of the beginning. Before any of us were formed, God had this plan. So the preparations had been going on for a long, long, long time. And even now, Jesus has been giving this message leading up to this event, saying the time has come. The time has come. And if the people would have been aware, especially the religious leaders, you know, one thing about the Jewish people and the Jewish religious leaders, they knew what we call the Old Testament, or they knew the law. They knew what the prophets had been speaking you know, everything Jesus was saying and doing, they should have already known about from their own Bible, their own Torah, from the law, because it was all predicted. But, as we know, most all of them had been missing it completely. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a historical context first, and it's going to be coming from four different books of the Bible. Matthew chapter 21, Mark 11... Luke 19 and John 12, we're going to get four different kind of points of view. If you can imagine, it's like if all of us, a bunch of us, were together and some event unfolded. You know, maybe, maybe we all went to the Tracy Boxcar Day Parade. Anybody ever gone to that? Well, let's go to the big parade like Ballotons. <laughs> If we all went, and then he said, you know what, I'd like you four to just write down everything you saw. You know what, none of those four things would be the same. They'd all probably be accurate, but from different perspectives. If you want to really get a good picture of some of these things that were unfolding, especially in the last week of Jesus' life, you need to look at all four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and see that we're getting this story kind of from four different perspectives, It's all the same event, but it's different people, different personalities writing down, inspired by God, writing down what they witnessed, what they saw taking place. And it gives you so much more of a fullness of the story of that last week and the events that were taking place. So it's Passover week. Passover week is a celebration in the Jewish nation. It was a celebration of being set free from Egypt and slavery and bondage that we were under in Egypt, where they had been slaves for almost like four, 400 years of slavery. And it's also then a celebration of the start of a new nation, the Jewish nation, the Hebrew nation, Israel. So it's this big celebration. And it was one of the religious holidays that they were Jewish people were required, strongly encouraged to come to Jerusalem, come to where the temple was and celebrate this huge religious event. And they came. And they came from all over. There would be long streams of people. When you when you look at look at Jerusalem, I put up map number two, and I know most of you are in the back and are not going to be able to see this. But if I can figure out how to run the pointer and get you in the right direction. This is the city of Jerusalem. And as you notice, there's not many roads that were coming into Jerusalem. Not many roads. Hundreds of thousands. Depending on what historian you read, you could get up into the million or two million. But I'm going to just stick with hundreds of thousands of people would come from all directions to Jerusalem. There would be tents everywhere. In the city, outside the city, outside the walls, even going up into the hills, you can imagine 250,000, 300,000, some people say 2 to 3 million people for this Passover celebration. And when they would come together, of course, it was a religious celebration. It was about all of the sacrifices they were about to make at the temple. It was all of these things. But can you imagine that many people coming together and not just being crazy, With a celebration, everybody's been walking all these miles through these dusty mountain roads, and they're coming together. And it's a sense of excitement, even as they're preparing. And they would come, many of them would come up to a week early. And they would come a week early because there were certain rites of purification that they would have to go through. There would be ritual cleansings that they would have to go through before they could sacrifice their lambs. And some would bring smaller animals if they couldn't afford it. Some estimates are somewhere around a quarter million or more lambs would be killed on that altar. Can you imagine? A river of blood flowing from the altar outside the city, under the city wall and out into what we would call the Valley of Gehenna. But a celebration nonetheless, and people everywhere. Caravans coming. And at the same time, this is taking place. So again, imagine in your minds, Seven, eight roads may be coming into Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands of people coming in these caravans. Some would take a boat across the Mediterranean Sea to get there, and then they'd have to walk. At the same time, all these pilgrims were on their pilgrimage. Something else would be taking place, and that would be the Romans would be sending more troops. If you can see the ones that you can see, those of you that can't, this here area is the temple right there is called Antonia Fortress. That is where the Roman soldiers were staying all the time because Jerusalem, like the rest of the area, was under Roman control. But during the Passover week, because there's so many, many, many thousands of people coming, a Roman garrison would come from Caesarea. Caesarea is to the north, the road to Caesarea. So any of the pilgrims coming from there would have had this experience along the way. If you can imagine, the Roman governor of the area, his name you'll probably recognize. At this time, it was Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate would have came with a garrison of Roman soldiers. They would have come, on some of them on their mighty horses, the rest of them soldiers, foot soldiers, marching, they would have had their banners. They would have been in full Roman military garb, the gold and metal shining in the sun. Can you imagine a garrison just stomping their feet and walking? And can you imagine what it would be like for all the pilgrims that are along the way that are stepping out of the side to the side, out of the way of these Roman soldiers? It's such a unique picture. They would carry these banners. They would have the the poles with eagles on the poles, and basically all symbolic of worship towards their God, Caesar. So while we've got all these pilgrims coming in caravans to worship their God, we've got the Roman soldiers coming. Such a picture of contrast of what's taking place. The power of Rome was on display for all to see. It's into this environment. This is what's kind of taking place as the people are coming to Jerusalem as the Jews are gathering for Passover. It's into this same environment that Jesus and his disciples are coming. Jesus and his disciples, uh, I think there's a, is there another map next. This is a close-up. Jesus and his disciples have been coming from the north. About two weeks previous to this, Jesus and his disciples were around the Sea of Galilee. They were down at Capernaum, kind of his home base and he had been doing miracles. And they'd been walking for about two weeks. They had passed through the city of Jericho. You may may remember the song that we sang as little kids about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, you come down. That had taken place as they were passing through Jericho. Some blind guys were hollering out to Jesus, and he healed the blind. He'd been doing miracles. So it had been about a two-week walk from way up there, from from the Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee, And now they've passed through Jericho. They've walked up the mountain, the hills, the mountains, and they're at a place called Bethany. And that's where our story here this morning really begins, at Bethany. It's one week before the resurrection. That's all it is, one week. It's only a few days before the crucifixion. And the setting is Jesus and his disciples have arrived in Bethany. And the Bible doesn't tell us. A lot of this information is from the scriptures I gave you, but it's also from a historian who lived at that time named Josephus, and then also from Alfred Edersheim's book about the life of Jesus. So it comes from historical records. So at this time, Jesus and his disciples are right here in Bethany. Bethany is only about a mile from Jerusalem, so they're almost there. But to get Jerusalem from Bethany, it's only a mile, but you can't see the city because there's this rolling mountains. They call them mountains, or we'd almost call them hills. And as you take that road down in to Jerusalem, you would finally come over the hill, and you'd be able to see Jerusalem. And as you were doing that, you'd be walking past the Mount of Olives, and you would probably be walking right past the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is where where Jesus is now. He's at Bethany. And he's staying at, stopped there that night, at a friend's house. Simon the leper, the one he had healed the leprosy. And three of his closest friends outside of the disciples were there too. It was a relaxing evening supper before he was going into Jerusalem. And you might remember, if you're familiar with Jesus' story, the last time he'd been to Jerusalem, things didn't go so good. He actually made the horrible mistake of healing somebody on a Sunday. And they decided that it was time to get rid of this guy, the religious people, and he had left Jerusalem. And now he's coming back. And oh, is it changed, and oh, is it going to be different when he comes back this time. They were coming to Jerusalem, stopped at Bethany, resting and relaxing. And I started to say earlier, and I forgot, they wouldn't have been the only ones on the road. There would have been a whole lot of people on the road there would have been a caravan of people following him going before him there would have been people everywhere and they would have camped anywhere and everywhere but jesus is there and he's with mary martha lazarus and simon the leper's house resting up before what i'm calling the grand opening so we're going to start our start our stau- set, little, 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 little. we're going to start our story i really wasn't speaking in tongues Just stuttering. And we're going to go through some scriptures from the different gospels. We're going to start our story in Bethany at Simon the leper's house in John chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It's six days before the Passover. Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had risen from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. I love to just imagine. Can you imagine the scene reclining at that table? The disciples are there, and Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, really not that long ago, he's there. I can only imagine the conversation. I'd have been saying, Lazarus, really, what was it like? What's being dead look like? Did you go anywhere? What was it like when you came out? Martha, Mary, what was it like? Your brother was dead, and all of a sudden you came back. I can, I, I can only imagine the conversation. And there's the excitement of the Passover that Jesus is going to celebrate in Jerusalem. Then in John chapter 12, verse 3 through 8, it says, Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, a very, very expensive oil and an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, he objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not have always have me here with you. While this is taking place. Things down back in Jerusalem are really heating up in the celebration. The city is swelling, as I said, by hundreds of thousands of people. This year it was indifferent than any other year they've ever had the Passover because something had changed in the last couple of years, and that something was Jesus. And you can read in the scriptures many, many places that word spread about everything he did. He's only a mile from Jerusalem, is where Bethany is, where Lazarus was raised from the dead. Word got around. The miracles, the Pharisees always were sending religious leaders to watch what he was doing to get reports back about this guy. The people knew. The people were aware. The people were wondering, what's going to happen? They remembered the feeding of the 5,000. They remembered the blind seeing, the lame walking, even the dead waking up. They remembered, and they're all wondering, as it says in John 11, starting at verse 55, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the fe- feast at all? But the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. So in the city, there's this this anticipation, this hope. It's just kind of boiling to the surface. The people are wondering, is he going to come? We've heard about his miracles. where, Where we've been, he hasn't been. We haven't seen him do these things. Can you imagine the excitement, the anticipation? And can you imagine? It's, it's Jerusalem. It's the Passover. Maybe this is the time. Maybe this is the time the really true Messiah, because there had been other false messiahs in their culture's history. Maybe this is the time. Maybe this Jesus who's doing all these amazing things, maybe he's the, He is the Messiah who is going to come and break the yoke of bondage of this Roman Empire, and He is going to become our King, just as the Word of God said. Only they misunderstood. But they don't know that, and they're excited, and they're anticipating Him coming. And then word gets out. In John chapter 12, verse 9, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there. That would have been easy to find out. Some of the hundreds of thousands that were coming with Jesus or behind Jesus would have gotten closer to the city, and word would have spread. Can you imagine? We were just there. We just saw him. We passed him on the path, on the road. He's coming. He is coming. Word spread like crazy through the city, and it says that many or thousands decided, why wait? If he's in Bethany, it's only a mile up the hill. Let's go see him. And this is what it's saying. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, and they came, not only because of him, but they also wanted to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But there they are, the chief priests. They made plans plans to kill Lazarus as well. Notice, as well. They already had plans to kill Jesus. Where they told people to tell us, if you see him, we want to arrest him. No, they didn't want to arrest him. They wanted to kill him. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. The people were excited. The religious leaders were planning a murder to get rid of Jesus and now Lazarus. And Jesus then is getting ready. It's the next morning, and he's getting ready to head to Jerusalem. Picture, if you would, there are two humongous crowds coming from both directions. This crowd that was in Jerusalem is leaving the city of Jerusalem, walking up to see Jesus. And this crowd that's in Bethany and the surrounding area and all the other pilgrims that would be around the way, they're coming down as they're walking to Jerusalem. So we have these two masses of people getting ready to come together. That's why there were so many people out on that dirt path that day, that morning when Jesus is coming. Matthew 21, verse 1 says, As they approached Jerusalem... They came to Bethphage. Now, if you noticed on that second map, there was Bethany, Bethphage, and Jerusalem. There's not a lot of agreement on where Bethphage really was. It's almost like it might have just been a uh, suburb, in our language, to Jerusalem. Whatever it was, it was a small village, and it was between Bethany and Jerusalem. And as they approached this, small city as they approached jerusalem they came to the on the mount of olives jesus sent two disciples saying to them go to the village ahead of us and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her side untie them and bring them to me and if anyone says anything to you tell them that the lord needs them and he will send them right away well, evidently, the disciples were obedient by this time. Jesus had made quite the impression on them. And they went. I think if I was me, that'd be one weird request. I'd have said, Jesus, I'm going to get arrested. It's not our animal. It's not a good thing to steal somebody's donkey or colt of a donkey. But they went, and everything happened just exactly like Jesus said it would happen. And they brought the colt and the donkey, but the colt is the is the emphasis here. This small colt of a donkey, and they brought that to Jesus. And it says that they put their coats on the donkey, and then Jesus got on the donkey to ride into Jerusalem. That's weird. If you know anything about Jesus' ministry, he never rode anywhere. They walked everywhere. He was walking with his disciples all the time, teaching and ministering to them. And now all of a sudden, he's going to ride Why? And the colt of a donkey. Why? Because Jesus was proclaiming who he was. This was his grand opening to who he really was. Before, there was parables, and there was words to the disciples, and nobody really got it. But if they were paying attention at all, from here on in, it was like loudspeakers booming. Here comes the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Here comes the king who is the son of David. Here he comes to bring salvation to all, freedom forever. They missed it. But if they'd have noticed, and this was a significant part because in Zechariah, chapter nine, in verse 9, it says these words. And Zechariah wrote these words about 535 years before this event. And everything Jesus did filled prophecy. Now, some people say, well, it's easy. If Jesus knew it, he could do whatever it took to make it look good. Well, he could have done that and told him to go get the, the colt of a donkey, I suppose. But try to make the people respond the way the people respond. You couldn't have done it. It would have been impossible. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Zechariah says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem. See... Your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Amazing detail to prophecy. And if you would hear those words at all, it couldn't even be describing a normal human being. He is coming and he is righteous. There is no one righteous, no, not one, except Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh. He is bringing salvation. There is no one that can bring salvation except Jesus. And he's riding a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this is a picture not only of what he was doing and who he was as the king, it's giving you a little bit of a picture of the kind of kingdom he had. It would be a tradition when a king came riding into your city. And you've got to remember, almost every city had their own king. We sometimes forget that. But if a king came riding on a stallion with people, get your weapons ready because he was coming to make war and conquer. But if a king came riding in on the of a donkey or a donkey, he was coming in peace. Jesus is just showing them, not only I am the king, I am fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah and a whole lot of other prophecies, but I'm going to show you my kingdom is going to be one of peace. He's really saying to them, it's going to be a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom. But you can understand the people. They'd been under, under the Roman rule and it was vicious, they were taxed unmercifully. And here he was, the Messiah. And it's as if he's entering the city, saying, You know what? Here I come. I'm going to give you one more chance. Pay attention. Especially you religious leaders, you should know better. Pay attention. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am righteous, and I am bringing salvation to all who will receive. The parade, the crowd, the crowd was huge. As I already described, you've got people coming from both directions. Jesus is riding this coal of a donkey. And then other prophetic pictures begin to unfold. What do the people start doing? It says they start throwing their coats, their cloaks, on the ground in front of Jesus and this donkey. Again, a picture, a common thing when the king was coming or going through your city. Out of honor and respect, people would throw their coats and their cloaks in front of the king's horse or a king's mount. And he would ride and it would be a picture of recognizing he was king and honoring him as king. The people started throwing their cloaks on the ground. The excitement and energy in Jerusalem, I can't, it's hard to imagine. I'm sure word spread like wildfire down that mountain. Can you imagine? It's only a mile away when they start, whenever they meet. I, the people, it would have been like a volcano getting ready to erupt. The Messiah is coming. Except over here on this side, the religious leaders would be going, Oh, nuts. That word's okay, right? Where's Oakley? <laughs> Oh, nuts. Here he comes. We're in trouble. What are we going to do? Look at the people. They're they're welcoming as if he's the king, the liberator, the Messiah. It's going to rattle our world. What are we going to do? Jesus is making his claim, and he's making it a grand opening claim. In Matthew 21, It says this, starting at verse 8, A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees, spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, and they asked, Who is this guy? When the spreading of the coats, it's symbolic of recognizing the king. With the, the palm branches, the palm branch was a symbolic, a patriotic symbol for the people, the Jewish people. It, they were missing it, but they were recognizing him. There's something happening in the nation. Something's about to unfold. Then this city was stirred. And What's it look like in your mind when the city stirs? Let's go stir a city. Well, some of us did that once. <laughs> this had to be better than that. That word stirred is an interesting word. It's just a tiny little word. It means seo in the Greek. But what it means is is to rock, to vibrate, to tremble, to agitate, to throw into a total tremor. In other words, the city is beginning to boil with excitement and enthusiasm. Romans are starting to pay a little bit of attention. The Pharisees and scribes are paying a whole lot of attention. And the people are going crazy. Going crazy. It's the Passover and the Messiah. And he's coming from what direction? He's entering from the east. Picture of where Jesus for us is going to return. They're excited. Hollering. He might have rigged the colt, but he sure couldn't rig what they hollered, and they start hollering, Hosanna, 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 which means save us or salvation. Save us, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's a psalm. I've got to look at the clock. There's a psalm 118. I don't have it on a slide, but if you have your Bibles and would want to look there, you can. But there were certain psalms the pilgrims would be t- singing as they were marching and walking. And as they would get closer to Jerusalem, there were certain psalms they'd sing, and it would almost be like if I said, okay, if you guys got your Bibles open, I want you to read the first phrase of the verse, and then you guys come back with the second phrase of the verse. And this is what it was like. And one of the words that they would hear, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Just listen. I'm going to start reading in 118, verse 24. And if you can imagine, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The people would be hollering and screaming and singing. And then they would say, O Lord, do save, we beseech thee. O Lord, we beseech thee, do send prosperity. Then it'd come back, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And we have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Back and forth it would be going as they're walking up and down the hills, heading into Jerusalem. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. The other group, bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, and I give thanks to thee. Thou art my God, I extol thee. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. This is what they would normally, every Jewish person making this trip would know these words. And that's why they're singing these things. Hosanna, save us. He who comes in the name of the Lord. They were singing a song of recognition that he was the Messiah. But they didn't understand. They didn't understand. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Wouldn't that have been fun? except it had to have been there six days later probably when it wasn't so much fun. But oh, what a celebration it would have been. And then something that seems to be, with the whole story I've told you, it seems to be completely out of place. Jesus is going down that hill, that mountain. Uh, Put up the map. I think, is it a map next? And again, I know you can't see it very well, but you can see the part I want you to see. This is the road to Bethany that Jesus would have been coming down. And you can kind of see some of the topography. They're walking kind of around the Mount of Olives. Getting up here, there's the Garden of Gethsemane right there. And then they would enter into Jerusalem at one of the gates. And as you go down this, this is the first part of this trip from Bethany, which is down here, you'd have to go up this hill first. So part of the Mount of Olives would be blocking your view. And the scripture I'm going to read you right now would be approximately when Jesus and this group were right there. They were just coming over the summit and they were going to be able to see Jerusalem. What's the next slide? As you can see, they would have been coming down the hill into the valley, past the Garden of Gethsemane, but this is what they would have seen, the walled city, the temple, and they would have seen all of this from up there. You would think this is like, the best moment of the whole trip for Jesus and his disciples. They've been walking for two weeks, crowds everywhere, and now they're almost there. But then something strange happens. Luke chapter 19, you might have to go back, I'm not sure. Verse 41 through 44. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept. He wept over it. And said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you. And for those that aren't aware right now, he is prophesying what was about to take place 70 years later when Jerusalem would be destroyed. People would be slaughtered. He saying to them, When your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side, they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming. All this celebration is going on, and Jesus comes over the hill and sees the city, and he weeps. And the word weep there is a powerful word again in the Greek. It means to sob, to wail, to wail out loud, to weep uncontrollably. Jesus is riding this colt of a donkey. Celebration, and they're praising him, and they're shouting Hosanna, and he comes over, and he sees the city. I believe he did not just see the city buildings. I don't believe he just saw the temple. I believe he saw all the people. God's chosen people, those that were with him in the parade, those that were inside the city, all those. Some of them his followers, others who have rejected him. The religious leaders had missed him. And he speaks those horrible prophetic words that there's coming a day because you rejected me, this whole city's going to be destroyed. When he looked at the people, who did he see? Well, he had the apostles there with him. He would have looked at the apostles, he would have seen the apostles. They were probably celebrating. I mean, seriously, if I was one of those apostles and all the, the stuff we would went through, in case you didn't know, I have a couple of young kids that watch my words carefully. Usually that doesn't stop me. But I'd have been thinking, about time, all the junk we've had to go through, all the persecution, getting run out of cities, this is why we joined up. We're going in, and we are the best friends of the Star of Stars. So, some of them were probably celebrating. I would have been. That's for sure. They were probably celebrating. Jesus, even looking at them, some of those tears he shed might have been for them. Because Jesus would have known what they were going to have to go through. He knew he was going to be leaving them. And he was going to commission them to go into all the world and make disciples. And he knew they were going to be persecuted, they were going to be arrested, they were going to be beaten. He knew that James, he was going to be beheaded. They knew that Peter or John was going to be sent to an island. He knew that Peter was going to be crucified upside down, but he's looking at his faithful followers. So he may have been shedding some tears for them. He would have seen the religious leaders in the crowd, in their fancy garb, looking like they're righteous and holy, holier than all the people. Their greatest fears were being confirmed right now. Everything they'd been afraid of was beginning to happen. They were being undermined. Their power was being threatened. Their hatred did nothing but get stronger and stronger about God and about this man named Jesus. They even shouted in Luke 19, verse 39, it says, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. (laughs) Did you hear that? Rebuke? It was kind of a soft rebuke. but Jesus, rebuke your disciples. <laughs> We're going to defrock you. <laughs> and what does Jesus say? And I love this. It's only a few words. But he says, if they would be silent, the rocks would cry out. You know what I love about that is? It doesn't matter how much religion... Religious people persecute the true faith. It doesn't matter how much they persecute believers. It doesn't matter how much they resist the word of God. People will continue to worship God. It doesn't matter. And he's saying, even the rocks will cry out. The Pharisees were not in a good place. They rejected Jesus. And I believe with all my heart, he didn't find any joy in that whatsoever. He loved these people. He was was weeping for those who rejected him. There would have been another group of people, the Romans. I'm sure there was more than a few Roman soldiers sent and said, check this out, what the world is going on around here? And they went out there, and they looked, and they saw, and they probably laughed and mocked and mimicked. You ought to see these silly Israelites, these Jews. They're cheering some guy riding a donkey colt of a donkey they're singing praises to him this is not a threat to the Roman Empire so they really were pretty much unconcerned indifferent certainly not committed to Jesus as the Messiah they kind of had that attitude as long as Jesus stays in his place doesn't bother me much doesn't change my little world he's okay we'll just let it go And then there was this group that I believe was probably the biggest group of all. These would be those who just, you ever jumped on the bandwagon? You ever been a Viking fan? (laughs) Cheap shot, right? You know, man, alive, your team starts winning a few games and you become super fan. Before I was super critic. All of a sudden, here he comes friends, people you may have been on this pilgrimage with, people from the city, family members, everybody's going crazy for Jesus. So am I. They probably were shouting the loudest, screaming the loudest. They jumped on the bandwagon as if they'd been there all along, and they hadn't been. And when the tough things got going that were tough, when the test came, the trial of their faith came, They were probably the same ones that were standing inside the city hollering, Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! They abandoned Jesus as soon as he wasn't what they wanted him to be. He wasn't going to set them free from the Roman Empire. He wasn't going to meet all their needs. He wasn't even going to be around to heal anybody anymore. What's the point? Let's get off this bandwagon before they start blaming us, too. Jesus would have weeped for all these groups of people, every one of them. The reality is, and you maybe see it already, those groups of people still exist today. And the crowd today is way too similar to that crowd, way too similar. The indifferent, uh, if you want to be a Christian and be a Jesus freak and a Bible thumper, you go right ahead. As long as you don't bother me, things are just fine. Just whatever you want's good. Just let me do what I want. Everything's okay. Just basically, leave me alone. It's my life, the indifferent. Boy, we hear that a lot. If you share your faith, you hear that a lot, don't you? If that's what you want to do, fine. But it's just not for me. Then we do run into the Hostile. They aren't always religious people. These are those that, for whatever reason, they refuse to accept the truth. They absolutely refuse the truth. They do not trust the Word of God, and if you try to bring it up, they almost get angry and mad. I don't want to hear what the Bible has to say. Here's what I think. They don't want to give up their pride, their power their lifestyle, the things of the world. They don't see the truth of how the benefits of being a believer in Jesus Christ so far outweigh anything the world has to offer. But they're not just indifferent, they're hostile. And then there's still that bandwagon jumping crowd. And sadly, I hope we don't have any bandwagon jumpers in here, but I think it's a pretty big crowd still today. They want to be seen in the right place. They want to be seen with the right people. Might even be their motivation to go into church. Things are going on good. Hey, let's go there. It's a happening place. Let's travel there and see what they're up to. It seems to be something great over there. Sometimes there is. Sometimes there isn't. But so often all they're seeking is what God can do for them. And if he doesn't do for them what they want him to do for him or them, and they don't do it it, he doesn't do it when they want him to, must not be a God. I don't want anything to do with it. The disparate, the indifferent, the hostile, the ones that jump on the bandwagon, I believe they still make Jesus weep today. Because it's God's desire, it's Jesus' desire, it's the Holy Spirit's desire that none should perish, not even one. And Jesus is demonstrating this in a full celebration of who he is, fulfilling prophecy after prophecy, and just hoping that they notice. I believe when Jesus sees the faithful, and I trust and pray that we're all part of that group of the faithful, There's probably tears, but they're tears of joy. They're tears of pride in his children. Probably more than anything, they're tears of compassion and and love for us. He knows the hardships that you are enduring even now, that we've endured in the past and what we will endure in the future. He knows about those hardships. He knows when our faith is being tried and tested and it's being strengthened. He knows those things. And I believe he weeps with joy over that in a way we can't even comprehend. Which part of the crowd are you? I always hope that we're the followers. But realistically, there's some that might be in each group. Probably don't have a whole lot of hostile. You're in the really wrong place for that. But have you decided that he is the Messiah. He is the righteous one who provided salvation through all through the cross. That as a sinner, I was separated from God and I couldn't do a thing about it in my flesh. Jesus came as a sinless, spotless sacrifice and died on that cross because the word of God said that the penalty for sin was death and somebody had to die for my sin and it couldn't be me. And frankly, it couldn't be any other man or woman that's ever walked the earth. It could only be a sinless sacrifice, Jesus. And he died for us, died for you, died for me. And your sins are forgiven. They're washed away. He doesn't even care about them anymore once we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. and Surrender our life to him. And because he did all this in obedience and love for the Father and love for us, God raised him from the dead on that third day. And basically, I'm sure if there was ever a well-done, my good and faithful servant, It was to Jesus. So which group are we? I pray you'd really evaluate where you're at this Easter season. God needs a committed people, a faithful people, because realistically, he could come back any time, and you and I have friends and family members and strangers that come across our path that don't know Jesus, and he wants us to share the good news with them. So I encourage you again in the next couple of weeks, invite people to come. I assume because you come, you kind of like church here. Why wouldn't you tell somebody else that? Because most of them think church is the most boring, dead, hypocrite-filled place there ever was. Maybe we can show them something different. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for Jesus. God, as we're saying about the love of the Lord this morning and how you bring life to dead bones. God, how there is nothing, no circumstance. There is nothing that can happen that would cause you to abandon us, forsake us, that you're with us always, that you desire faithful followers because you love us so much and you want to bless us as your children. So Lord, I pray you would bless each one here today. I pray, Lord, you would Put on our hearts people that we need to invite, those that we just extend the invitation and the Holy Spirit does the work, that we might share the good news of Easter, maybe in a way they've never heard it before, that your Holy Spirit would open hearts and minds, open our hearts, open our minds. And we pray all this, Lord, that Jesus, your son, our sacrifice, would be glorified in all of it and it's in his name we pray these things. Amen.